0: CliffCentral.com. CliffCentral.com. We try to bring interesting people to you—people who've done amazing things in their lives—and our next guest is nothing short of that. He was the um, operations maverick behind Lego, which is one of my favorite things. I mean, I'm not not just saying as a toy, but I think it's one of the most incredible inventions of all time. And the remarkable turnaround that was achieved there was largely done under this man's supervision. From a business that was on the brink of bankruptcy, struggling to deliver on its orders, to being the biggest toy brand in the world. He is Bali Pada, and he is with us this fine day. Sir, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. Good to meet you. And good to have you here, and thank you, and congrats on the book. uh, Thank you. First of all, it's a beautiful-looking book. Uh, You've done a terrific job there. The publishers know what they're doing, obviously. But it's uh, using the Lego blocks, which is great. So I will get Mm. to Lego in a moment, but I'm really excited to talk to you for a number of reasons. The book is what a lot of books are trying to be these days, which is kind of a distillation of business lessons. And you know, each one has their own unique insights, and, and I have no doubt that yours stand alone here. I mean, working with a brand like Lego must have been fun, but there are lots of things that go beyond Lego here too. So before we even dive into any of that, um, tell us about your own background and and where (laughs) you're from, what kind of a childhood you had, when the first time was that you discovered Lego and so on.
1: Uh, Excuse me. I was uh, born in India. Um, I was 12 years old when I came to the UK. I'd never heard of Lego at this point. And we had a family business, I helped in the shop. So that sort of gave me a good grounding of customer interface and uh, sort of business sense, cash flow. From a very young age, you know, I used to do the banking for the business Um, and my own family. And then subsequently when I got married, my wife's family, they're all entrepreneurs. So career was not a thing that you got into. Everyone was in business. So I left school when I was 16. Uh, you know, who, who needed qualifications when you're going to work for yourself? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I started working, did various blue-collar jobs, uh, roles, uh, saved up capital, uh, started two businesses, and unfortunately, they didn't work out how uh, fantastic learnings for me. And uh, that's one of the things I've always been sort of very, I've been very curious and how can I learn from different things? So even from adversity, there's always a learning that you can like. You can walk away with, fraught with. And during this period also, you know, when I was a blue collar, um, people just fascinated me. I was just trying to understand why people do certain things they do. Why is the work organized this way? Uh, you know, uh, so that curiosity sort of led me to love challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, blue collar, and in the meantime, I've got married, and then, uh, a little bit later, we've also got a, a child, and we have a mortgage, and uh, there just wasn't enough cash coming in to cope with everything. Uh, so a common, start, story, uh, common story, I think, for many people <clears> at the point yeah, of that, yeah. Uh, so I started, so I was doing shift work and I started driving taxis as well when I was finishing my shift. Uh, and then in the meantime, I sort of realized, okay, I've done two businesses. I haven't succeeded. Maybe I need to try a career. And then for a career, rightly or wrongly, I sort of had in my head that you've got to have a piece of paper called a degree for, to have doors open for you. So I started doing night school it took me 7 to 9 years to get my bachelor's degree and you know in the meantime I'm married driving taxis and while I'm driving taxis when I'm down at the stand I'm reading my books doing my homework doing assignments uh so you know it was it was, it was a lot of a lot of fun uh and then I was sort of 80% through my degree uh, when I was at, obviously, um, my employer knew I was, what I was doing because they had sponsored me, fortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, they offered me a role in what was then called work study. So, work study oh. is basically the measurement of activities, working out utilizations and factors. And, uh, then again, you know, gave me a fantastic insight into costings. So, I obviously got a, a, uh, involved with finance. Uh, with the timings we were working out, you know, when you have to do estimates for tenders, you know, so all, all of that stuff sort of just started coming in. And I, I didn't realize what a fantastic grounding I was getting till later on in life. And, you know, you recall what you've learned and you start reusing it. So again, mm. you know, the, the learning sort of became a, a big part of what I was doing. Um, I, you know, got my bachelor's and then, uh, I got another promotion, which was, uh, looking after part of a production floor. I had about, I think 65, 70 employees in my area. And, and, you know, when I'd come from a blue collar role, I sort of thought, okay, I've arrived. This is it now, you know, uh, I'm going to Got be it. here till I retire. Uh, you know, this is it. Uh, I, it. It was good money. I I, I could stop driving taxis. Uh, my wife could take it easier as well. Uh, yeah. So it, it
0: it became, I've arrived. Then so, again, my, so can, can oh, can I before, before we carry on with the story, I, I just want to pause and and maybe have some reflection from you on some of those things because mm. while you mentioned the blue collar jobs and driving taxis and that kind of thing, you, you know, there's. There's a humility that I think all entrepreneurs kind of have about them, which which bypasses so many people who see only the success. And there are lots of people who only look at the story and they'll go, oh, well, you know, this guy kind of ran Lego and that's the most important thing here. But all of these things that you did before then, and, and some of them not particularly glamorous or exciting, most of them I'm, I'm sure not that you would wish to repeat um, because they must have been a hard slog, long hours, difficult customers. Yeah. Without, without those, you would doubtless have suffered because you wouldn't have learned the lessons that they taught you about human nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated in your book about this relationship between, you know, consumers and, and businesses and the efficiency of businesses and all of that stuff. Do you think that those jobs in the beginning taught you all of that? Uh,
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, again, you know, from a very young age, um you know like one of the things uh, i don 't think I've said it in the book, but uh the customer is not always right. you know people sort of uh, there 's this mantra the customer is always yeah. right um, you know the customer has a motivation, and you as a trader, as an entrepreneur, whatever, you have your own motivation, so you, your objective should be to get those two to meet if you become far too subservient, you actually harm your own business. Uh, and I learned that very early on, you know, like at, uh, the shop I worked in, family shop, was a grocery shop. So it wasn't sort of very big business or anything. Uh, but again, you know, customers wanted discounts. Uh, they wanted uh, uh, better service, etc. And again, you had to balance it against what you could do to sustain your own business. And sometimes, yes, you had to give in depending on the customer. Uh, so So again, you know, as, as I keep saying, uh, learnings every step of the way you know for, for me the learnings are just absolutely phenomenal
0: and and compromise i mean that's that's part of what you you are hinting at here i think and that you also discuss in the book is that everything is on a sliding scale you want more of this you have to give some of that yeah. Um, yeah. nothing nothing is nothing is you know a straightforward 100% or zero that's right. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And, you know, uh, again, as I was saying, you know, the, the customer wants something. Uh, it's understanding your own business. What is your own money-making logic? Then also trying to understand what is their money-making logic. So what is motivating them? So now I've got, I'm sort of dropping into the realms of re- uh, Lego now. Um, so, you know, the, our customers were Big customers, people like Walmart toys or us you know that i 'm talking about I was when I was in the u s uh, so you know what is motivating that particular buyer to behave the way he or she is, and then also understanding what is it that we can do to help her and also not harm ourselves because mm. many a time you know businesses bend over and they do certain things which actually harms the, their own business or they'll do something that harms the customer's business.
0: Right. Right. And you can't do either of those. Because no, if, you absolutely, do, yeah. if you do it, it's to the, to the detriment in the end of all. So yeah. let's just talk about, since you've brought us to Lego, and you, you already mentioned this, one of the first things in your book that you, you go into is that you need to understand your customer's motives. And yeah. you're talking here about big, heavy-hitting gorillas in the room like Walmart and people like that. And most people who deal with, a customer like that would be fairly intimidated. I mean, if Walmart decide to scrap your product line and they decide not to do a deal with you, that can, that can mean the end of your business, hmm. even a big business like Lego, because they are such a behemoth. And it must be when you go into those rooms, a bit of all or nothing. Um, in contrast to what we were saying about compromise just now, you, how do you keep your wits about you and also stand firm when necessary and sometimes let things go a little bit? How do you yeah. know? How do you, how do you uh, trust I, I, your your gut there?
1: Yeah, I, I think you know, I was going to say it's it's like an instinct as well. It's like a gut instinct, but it's also sort of you know uh, uh, doing the homework about understanding where you as a supplier stand in the customer's business and what is the terrain of the business that you're working in, mm-hmm. and then the, 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 then you're know, also trying to understand what are they trying to achieve by pushing you to do A, B, or C? And then if you were to do that, how would that impact us? Uh, I I think that that was a way of keeping your wits about you. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are many meetings where you get absolutely slaughtered, you know, when your performance hasn't been where it needs to be. Um, I, know. You know, I I remember a Walmart meeting, you know, where the guy said, uh, tell me why I should sell Lego. I can make more profit putting dog food on the shelf than putting Lego. I mean, that wow. is tough. Oh that is a tough message to take. And then you try and convince them how you're going to service them better, how you're going to dig yourself out of the hole uh, that you've dug yourself into initially. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, 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 again, you know, it's it's... Doing your homework, understanding, then also having confidence in your own capabilities, your abilities in the business as to what you can and can't do. Because if in those meetings you overpromise and you don't deliver, then there is definitely no coming back.
0: Well, since we're on to Lego, let's just hop straight in here because… In 2005, as you describe it, Lego was not in a healthy position. And, mm. you know, I grew up with this stuff. I loved it. It was one of my favorite things. It allows kids, and I'm going to extol the virtues of Lego so you don't have to, but it taught me about building and imagination and, uh, and creativity and all kinds of things, which I think I still have a bit of a preoccupation with. I mean, I'm a frustrated architect and right. engineer. And I think, Despite not having qualifications in either of those realms, Lego helped me to feel that even though it wasn't something I was super specialized in, it was something I could do. And I think for a lot of kids, being able to create something with these mm. building blocks is the most incredible feeling of achievement. You know, especially if you are the sort of kid who has great ideas in your head and you can turn them into fruition. But in 2005, this was not a good business. Uh, things were going horribly wrong. Uh, for various reasons, and you can tell us about some of those, things were going in completely the opposite direction. And it was very close to us never having Lego. Uh, it may have closed down. There may have been horrible kind of, you know, um, attempts by other companies to produce some sort of generic form of Lego. But Lego, as it's, as, it, as it's known to all of us who love it, would have probably disappeared were it not for a very, very smart management team in a, in a completely different direction. Take us through that story.
1: <clears throat> yeah so um in, in, in terms of timing it was uh 2002 and 2003 which I would say were our darkest years um we were making loss there was no yeah, the profit was not being generated and some of the products had been costed incorrectly so the more we sold the more we were losing uh we got a new ceo in and uh, he took away a lot of the adjacencies that we were in. Um, we'd come from an era where we felt no one can express our brand better than ourselves. As an mm-hmm. example, uh, we went into publishing, and we thought no one could sort of express the brand. So we became our own publishers. We became our own watchmakers. We became our own uh, clothing manufacturers. We also had Legoland Parks. You know, we, we're not a theme park operator. We were a toy manufacturer. So he got rid of all the adjacencies, including Legoland Parks. Uh, but the family held on to, th- I think it was 30 odd percent. Uh, and the rest was owned by Merlin. Uh, today it's 100% owned by the family again. Uh, so we took away the adjacencies. So that, that, that was a one sort of distraction so we could focus on the main business. Then talking a lot to the consumers, so that end users, you know, they're understanding what the child wants, and Lego is very fortunate. We have a very large community of adults. Uh, yes. And you know we affectionately call them "Apples," adult fans of Lego. And they arrange seminars, big sort of uh, exhibitions, nothing to do, do with Lego. They do it themselves. And sort of talking to them and their knowledge of the product and their knowledge of what a brick can do and what they do with it is just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so talking to them understanding what they're doing Uh then internally looking at ourselves you know what was the strategy you know what's what's very really spri- surprising gareth is so we were you know on the border of extinction and then we did the turnaround the designers were the same we didn't change any designers so what changed what the direction that was being set to them so the strategy that was being set yeah so the people were executing what they were being told to execute yeah uh, so, so the strategy became okay let's get back to the basics of what uh, the brick is about and then you know from an operations perspective the there was uh, a lot of complexity in our portfolio so we removed a lot of that complexity we went from about 14,500 components down to less just over 4,000 you know and we did that in about 6 months uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, and then also you know the way we managed the company the way we led the company uh there was no there was sort of fiefdoms in the company mm-hmm. and you know and the culture was basically whoever was shouting the loudest was setting the culture mm-hmm. so You know, uh, know, uh, kudos to the new CEO. You know, he said, we need to set the culture and we don't write the culture down. It's how we start behaving. Yeah. So we created a lot of transparency and from that transparency came a lot of accountability. Uh, I remember I used to go into meetings and we'd spend half the meeting arguing if the number was correct or not rather than what is the corrective action. Yeah. So that transparency gave us solid data to work from and then come up with the
0: solutions around that. And there when was a- you, Sorry, when you talk about a company with, with the, the culture that had become kind of shouting and antagonistic and working in silos and people with personal fiefdoms, this is a problem that I think affects so many companies when they go from... You know, uh, the early stage of the founders and a small sort of family and it's tight knit and everybody knows what everybody else does and everyone knows everyone else in the company. And then there's this calcification that starts to occur as the the company grows and as it emerges as a sometimes multinational corporation. So these things are kind of inevitable in companies and and it's hard to retard the, 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 the wave of progress in inverted commas That turns a company into one of these machines,
1: isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, we we then need to ensure that we remain mindful that this could happen. So, as an example, you know, uh, in two thousand four or five, when we got rid of all our adjacencies, um, you know, our distribution centers came down in numbers. The complexity, the portfolio was uh, done, uh, and then. we set about saying, okay, so what is important? What distinguishes us from our competitors? And we felt one of the key things was the way we collaborated within the company. So in terms of setting the culture, we then set collaboration as a very high priority. And so, you know, like in every business, you have um, annual bonuses. And the mm-hmm. bonuses on you need to achieve 100 widgets or 90% or whatever it is. So if I call that the what... We then overlaid how was this being done? How was this particular individual collaborating? And that could bring the bonus down quite substantially. But what that also does then is puts an emphasis on the management systems in the company to ensure that people are getting regular feedbacks all through the year. So it's not just once a year at the end, you are surprised. So as you go through the year, you know i'm getting feedback that i'm not collaborating well enough because of here are the specific examples how i could have done better i need some extra coaching or whatever and then come end of the year you know try try and pull it together uh then another piece we also did was uh, we looked at uh, another form of complexity that happens is when processes don't work or decision making gets slowed down is generally due to the structures that are built as you grow you add more and more people, and as you're adding more people, the structures start uh, expanding as well. So, 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 you know, every three, four years, we used to look at what we called our spans and layers. So, how many mm-hmm. layers in the organization are there from the CEO right, right the way down? And what is the span of these people that people are managing? Like, if, if an individual is managing two people, that is a recipe for disaster potentially if we don't manage it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we were saying, you know, there has to be a span of eight or ten people. So the manager is not micromanaging; she has to now lead the people rather than micromanage. Yeah. So the spans, so the, the number of mechanisms, you know, that we put in. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't. Yeah. You know, uh, was collaboration perfect? No, it wasn't. But we were continuously on it. So it didn't become a major
0: issue to take us backwards
1: all
0: right there's a There's a chapter in the book which I found fascinating. You talk about business as being an organism, a living organism yeah. do you just want to explain what you mean by that because I think for many of us we we tend to think of it as charts and numbers and deals yeah, yeah. and and supply and demand and h r and all of these things which are totally inorganic. How do you see a business uh
1: yeah it, very early on so it was sort of coming back to my family shop days mm-hmm. uh, a business is interconnected so when you start making ch- un- unless you're a large conglomerate and you're, do- you're working in many many different areas but most of the businesses are interconnected so when you make a change in one part of the business it invariably affects another part of the business somewhere along the chain yeah. mm. uh so th- a- and the best way I found of articulating it whilst I was at Lego and it's it's a living organism so if you cut yourself you have the ability to heal yourself but Mm -hmm. if if an arm is cut off it has an impact on the rest of your body so it's the interconnectedness and this is where the collaboration piece also came out quite quite heavily for us Um, it's ensuring that your strategy you have one strategy and it's not actually conflicting with other parts of the business. In 2004, we had strategies everywhere which were directly opposing other parts of the business. So if if someone delivered on the strategy, it would harm someone else in the business. Not your competition, within your business.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's very helpful because many of us struggle to see this. And again, this is something that you can say without any doubt came from your early days in the family shop and, and getting to know the customers and their desires and their needs and talking about chopping off that limb. The, the book is called, though, Deliver What You Promise. And I don't know that that's the most popular statement about you know, modern society. A lot of people are trying their damnedest, and I think it starts with the politician. But a lot of people are trying their absolute best to do exactly the opposite. In other words, to absolve themselves of personal responsibility, yeah. to promise everything and never deliver anything and still get away with it. So when you thought about the cover of this book and you thought about the name of the book, um, obviously you refer to very specific things that you put into play while you were at Lego and throughout your career. But but this is, um, do you agree with me that this is not the, the maxim of our times, so to speak?
1: Uh, unfortunately, I have to agree with you. Uh, uh, however, uh, this was something I brought into Lego in 2005, and it, it started with you know delivering what you promised to your customer. Mm-hmm. And as as it happened, it, it worked out very well. So, you know, you know, at the start, you talked about Lego as creative; it boosts your imagination. Yes. So. We have a promise to the child, so when the child opens a box of Lego, you know the creativity, the imagination that's a promise that you know we're get, we're putting forward uh, as as a lego entity and then if I was working in packing, my contribution to that is to ensure there are no missing pieces. so when the child opens their box on Christmas day, you know there shouldn't be any missing pieces if I'm a designer, I make sure all the Uh, pieces fit together building instructions are right so it it sort of permeated right the way through the business rather than just one element of it but but i agree with you it sort of seems to be near enough fashionable nowadays as to say something and you know uh, with us having just gone through brexit and what's going on with our own politics over here in the uk you know, mm-hmm. if they were they were delivering what they were promising, yeah, you know, I sit there and say to my wife, you know, if this was a business, you'd have fired all of these people.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid this is this is unfortunately something we all have to deal with now, and it's not yeah. so easy to yeah. see how we're going to how we're going to get away from that. But I like the idea that it's little things like making sure that someone doesn't have a missing piece, because yeah. there's something there's something metaphorical about that too. There's something metaphorical about the idea that. We all want to build our dreams, but if you have a missing piece of your puzzle, then your dream falls apart. And very often, you're, you're, you're shy to even carry on, and it can ruin dreams. Yeah. What were the most challenging moments of your time at Lego? And, and what would you say were your greatest challenges that you overcame, the greatest success stories out of that period? Because you've, you've yeah. spoken a little bit about processes, and there's one in particular we can refer to in just a moment. But what do you feel in terms of events and your own memory and recollection of that time? What do you think the greatest challenges were? Uh,
1: I think uh, so, so. When I, as I, again, if I go back, uh, I joined Lego in 2002, hmm. and in that time, the supply organisation was seen as next to useless. Uh, and I think I mentioned in the book uh, we were known as the arseholes Inc. of the corporation. Right? <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. So this was 2002. So a you know, very bad year. We cannot deliver. Uh, new CEO comes in. New CFO comes in. 2004. They decided to outsource the supply chain. Wow. And I, I, was, I was junior at the time. I wasn't uh, in the sort of what, top two or three layers. Uh, mm-hmm. And I actually went to the CFO. And I said, you know, we can turn this around. We do not need to outsource this. This is not rocket science. And uh, he said to me, the train has left the station. If you want to stand in front of it, be my guest. Okay. Uh, Message understood loud and clear. Uh, But within me, I was still, you know, we, we can do this. And then as time progressed, I became the head of supply chain. And then it was my job to outsource. So a guy who had said, don't outsource, we can fix this, is now in charge of the outsourcing. And uh, I I was very aware of that. And so I I, I sat down with both the CEO and the CFO, and I said to them, I said, look, I will deliver on this. This will happen. Uh, Regardless Mm -hmm. of how I feel, I'm making the So so we we went into the outsourcing. And very, very very soon, I realized the contract that had been signed was not right. So the contract manufacturer was not making money, and we were not getting the service. And as time went on, the situation got worse. So I, I had a choice to make. Either I'd go and find another contractor, which we had scoured the market, you know, we hadn't found anybody, or... I, uh, I take a deep breath, go into the CEO's office and say, we need to insource this and we'll get a better service. Right. And which did you choose? Uh, which we, we, we insourced everything and right. the CFO obviously wasn't happy. He said, of course he's going to, to say that. Uh, but then, you know, you, you ask about what was the proudest moment. I think one of my drivers for insourcing was, we were the world's largest molders. No one had as many molding machines as us. So, this is 2005, 6 now. Yes. Uh, and, and I was saying, you know, we have engineers here who know molding inside out. No one else has that capability. This is mm-hmm. a core capability to Lego, which we can actually utilize as a huge competitive advantage. So, I spent a lot of time in engineering, understanding what's happening. And then that is how I sold it to the CEO and also to the board to bring it all back in. And proudest moment is, you know, that molding is just a moneymaker for Lego. Uh, You know, at that time, we had about 600 machines, 700 machines. And the most we could see was about 100, 150 in one location. When I left, uh, we had close to 4,000. Sure. And, uh, I think today is close to 6,000. And that molding, and then we vertically integrated molding because, you know, the, the trend was to outsource everything. But, you know, so we said no, because we had some knowledge about molds that we didn't want to others to make because you know, all the steel cutting was done outside. So we started bringing the steel cutting in house as
0: well. You know, uh, people often say that the the CEO uh, gets a lot of the shine and the glory, but the COO is usually the person who does all the heavy lifting. And I think, you know, having spoken to enough people in business who've occupied either or both positions, and you've been in both, um, COOs know the company probably better than anyone else. They have to. That's their whole job. That's their whole business. And efficiencies and understanding the mechanics of all of that is probably the most important job a COO has. Uh, how would you differentiate the two roles? And, and why would you say that a COO, and I'm putting words in your mouth here, so correct me if I'm wrong. Why would you say, if if I'm right, that the COO is a rarer find than the CEO? Um,
1: <laughs> I, I wouldn't fully agree with you there. Yeah. Uh, so you know, for me, a big part of my success in Lego... Was the collaboration I had with the CMO, right? So the partnership we formed, and I'm talking about Matt Snipper in the book quite a bit. Yes. The, part, the partnership we formed there, I don't think either of us could have succeeded without the other. So it was that collaboration.
0: Well, let's just explain to people too, just for the for the, the purpose of context, that that your the management team at that point, all of you and and one or two others. Um, you guys had come up with some plans to really take Lego in a completely different direction. And, you know, the movies started coming out, the collaborations with some of the, the biggest franchises and all of that stuff, which really just pushed Lego into a completely different place to where it had been in those early yeah. 2000s. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we were in the movies before as well. So we'd had the Harry Potter, we had the star Wars, we did some work with Spielberg, uh, but what was happening was our own IPs, uh, were not as strong. So one of the things that we really focused in on was to ensure that our own IPs, so Lego City, yeah, mm. making that a lot stronger. Uh, Lego Ninjago, making that a lot stronger. Uh, yes. so th- that was the direction that we went into. Um, I- I'm, I'm, am sorry, Gareth, I've uh, lost thread of the question.
0: No, no, just in terms of, of, Oh, hang on. I've just had a, a power thing, but don't worry. Oh. It'll come back on in a minute. So I've got a, <laughs> luckily I've got a UPS here in South Africa. We're dealing with load shedding, which is what they're all oh, right. but the same power issues that you've got over there actually. No, I was asking about the, about the change in direction. I was asking about the COO and the CEO, and you mentioned that's when you brought in the CMO. All oh, right. Market. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, we'd be interested to know how those roles all co- kind of where yeah. they converge and, and yeah, where they, uh, they don't overlap.
1: Yeah. yeah I, I think, you know, in order for us to succeed, it's very important to have a CEO, CEO who's prepared to listen to you. And I mean, really listen, not just you know, give you the cursory nod of the head and you go out the door, uh, to engage with you. Uh, I, I couldn't have done any of this without the CEO's blessing. Uh, not only blessing, but also active participation where I needed it. Um, he, he, and he was very much in the strategic realm uh so he was the one who decided to get rid of the adjacencies he worked with the family he worked with the external environment so you know like um, the european union and everything with the, all the toy regulations so he, he was engaged a lot in that um yes there's no doubt he gets all the glory because he's the head head honcho yeah uh and and he's going to got, get the glory uh but but Without having the partnership with the CMO and uh, an empathetic
0: CEO, I don't think it's possible. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So let's just get back to the book for a second because it is full of business lessons. Um, Which of these things do you think people are the least good at implementing? Because... You know, the visual factory, let's just explain what that is. That was this this meeting you had once a week, right? Where you yeah. call in people from the business, all over the business. You could find yourself, you know, as a brand new recruit sitting right next to the CEO. Um, and in these visual factory sessions, people would figure out whether there are ways to improve processes, efficiencies, how the market works, who your biggest suppliers are, all kinds of questions would come up in these. This was your brainchild, was it not? Yeah, Yes, it was, yeah. Explain it in, in your own words, because I've given it a, a really hatchet job trying to explain it in mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I,
1: I think you, you amplified <laughs> it a lot more than it really was. So, so the, 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 way it it. Started, the way it started was when I joined Lego in 2002, I mean, the customer service levels were absolutely crap. You know, we were feeling our order fill rate was about 6 to 10%. Yeah, I mean, wow. it's Uh So I tried to institute a weekly operational update to see what did the customer order and what did we actually manage to ship. Yeah, And again, this goes back to the culture, accountability, transparency. Uh, people would be late for the meetings. People wouldn't turn up. And really frustrating. You, know, so you wanted some key people there. They haven't turned up. They've gone to another meeting. And someone said to me, you know, in Lego, everyone likes strategy and you're being very operational, executional. That's why they don't come. Yeah. So I changed the title of the meeting, called it a weekly strategic operational update. And the attendance went up. The agenda was the same. Right. <laughs> and uh, then, but people were still turning up late and everything. And then during this period I thought, you know, okay, so what are the key things that are important to us in this period? So we I looked at periods like the next quarter or next two quarters mm-hmm. and uh so wrote them up on a white on a whiteboard and said, Okay, this is what we're going to measure, this is what we're going to um and then assigned owners, so it was very clear who owned the data, they populated it, and the meeting was around discussing is it in green or is it in red? If it's green, no discussion. If it's red, what happened? What are we going to do about it? And again, okay. part of this was creating the transparency. Then there was a person accountable. And then what I also started doing, which sort of sounds a bit uh, childish, but that was the only way I could think of, was you know, you know the meeting starting at half seven in the morning. I'd lock the door at half seven. You couldn't right. come in afterwards.
0: Well, w- I mean, this is a big. This is again. I, I I hate to sit here and moan like a like an old man about modern society, but people seem incapable of of being punctual. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And not only that, if you were a senior guy, you expected a recap of what mm. had happened in the ten minutes that you were late. So that's yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm I'm sitting there thinking, hang on a minute. There's eighty eight people in this room. We're doing yeah. a recap. We're wasting 80 minutes of the company's resources because this guy couldn't be bothered to turn up on time. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so again, so that was the culture of the company. So it became known that, you know, if you're attending Bali's meeting, you better be on time. Otherwise, you'll be locked out. Yeah. Important. Uh, and, I, you know, one day I was in Denmark, and uh, the CEO was supposed to come, and I locked the door. Uh, so everyone was sort of I could hear whispers, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? And I thought if I don't do it now, that's the wrong message. Maybe uh, I was being too bullish here, but I did, and you know, him and I laughed about it afterwards and it became a game after that. He'd try and knock me out if I was late anywhere.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's a that's a big move to make because of course your own reputation and all the, the brand value you've built in 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 kind of making sure that people be on time and take these things seriously could have been out of the window if you've made an exception to the ceo yeah yeah Yeah. well i mean i've got to congratulate you it's a terrific book um and i think you. you know there are so many there are so many business books out there but why not learn from someone who is at the helm of one of the biggest and most successful companies in the world and who managed to be a part of this enormous and incredible turnaround do you have uh lego at home do you ever sit around and build things with Lego or is it Uh, not something...
1: I don't as much now, but I do. Yes, I do. Uh, uh, I'm just looking around my office at the moment. I don't have anything.
0: uh, I have a couple of pieces on show, yeah. Uh, I think that's great. I mean, it's it's something that probably... um, You know, secretly, everyone wants to do. It's only it's only the ones who are comfortable with that that you called it childishness when it came to punctuality just now. But I think that childishness is exactly the reason that we love Lego so much. Is it it allows children to to think of themselves as being you know in the world of building and changing things and and creating out of nothing. It's incredible, Bali. Well done on the book, and really, thank you so much for talking to us this uh, this day. It's it's just great to have your your insights into so much. The book is called. Deliver What You Promise by Bali Pada. I'll put it up on the screen and you can go and see. You can get it at all good bookstores or online. And, uh, yeah, good luck for the future. What are you up to at the moment?
1: I'm uh, advising a couple of CEOs. I'm on the – I'm a trustee of a charity in our county, um, helping my daughter with a business. She started her own business. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, – and, and trying to play golf badly.
0: <laughs> I think that's true for any golfer. Yeah. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk to okay. you. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Clifcentral.com